1: Welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers podcast today uh, as we're taping is an interesting day in America to say the least Democrats are licking their wounds but even more importantly I have my brother and friend and somebody we all look up to uh, not just for his scholarship but his work in the ministry his work in education he is you know the Baldwin of our time none other than the Reverend Dr. Michael Eric Dyson how you doing my brother?
2: You're so kind. It's always great to be with you, my friend. Such a brilliant light in this world. And I'm always honored to uh, have conversation with you, my friend.
1: So let's let's start with your book and and then we'll delve into what you saw uh, in this election this week. But we usually start our conversations by having the guests walk through the arc of their careers. But everyone knows who you are. So that would be somewhat of a moot point. Mm. So instead, let's dive into entertaining race. Now, I've lost count of what number book this is for you. But why did you write? Yeah,
2: 24, 24.
1: (laughs) Why did you do this project and what inspired you to do this collection of essays?
2: Thank you, my brother. Well, I, um, you know, I am just uh, deeply honored and privileged to be able to do what I do for a living, to think, to talk, to write, to engage, to be an activist, uh, to hold up the bloodstained banner of truth as, as high as I can. So this book is an extension of my career trajectory to this point. Over the last 30 years, this material in the book covers stuff I've done from like 91, 92 uh, on to the present. And so, you know, I wanted to gather it under the rubric of the theme, you know, Black performance in America, but entertaining uh, the ideal of race. And I mean it in three ways, at least the black folk have been forced to entertain white folk in America from the slave ship on, on the plantation, on stages and the like. Number two, that we've had to entertain the idea of a race constantly, whether we're selling water or lemonade on the street with our kids or barbecuing in Oakland or trying to go to, you know, work and people asking about our hair and the microaggressions or trying to, you know, be on stage as a politician and a president and a figure trying to represent us on media we're performing and i you know we're entertaining the ideal of race we're engaging that idea we're taking it on and then finally we got to be entertaining while doing it i mean one of the reasons bakari sellers is one of the most magnificent leaders of his generation ain't just because he's tall dark and handsome <laughs> and because he's got a you know a high iq and he knows this politics like the back of his hand But you make interesting statements. You do it in a way that's riveting to people when you're standing out on a courtyard and you're talking about a a black man who has been unjustly uh, killed or shot. Uh, You're doing it in ways that are provocative, that are insightful. So it's not just the substance of it. It's the style through which that substance is articulated. So that's what black people have been about as well, to be entertaining in talking about race, because if it's the same old thing in the same old fashion, white brothers and sisters and others get upset, get mad, try to figure out ways to retaliate uh, like they're doing with critical race theory. And we find new ways to come at these issues to engage this subject in a provocative fashion.
1: Man, that sounds exhausting. I mean, to to be black in America, when you look at it through that lens is a very proud, but exhausting lived experience.
2: And to take this. There's no doubt about that. There's no doubt about that, my friend. And And exhaustion is is a word that we need to use more, the trauma that attends our blackness. We love it. We embrace it. But what's what's tired and traumatic, what's exhausting, I should say, and traumatic is not our blackness itself, it's the response to the blackness. It's the necessity of having to say again what it is. And yet saying it again uh, is necessary. Your father, your father's generation, Martin Luther King Jr., his generation, they constantly said and said again, And what we sometimes find unacceptably exhausting, it's exhausting, but unacceptably exhausting is what they found as necessary to do. They didn't have the privilege of retreat. And let me say this with all respect for younger uh, activists who have given us notions of self-care and the like, that stuff is extremely important. When Martin Luther King Jr.'s body was opened up in his autopsy, he was 39 years old, had the heart of a 60 year old man. I'm 63 now. I hope that meant that he was uh, going to be in good shape when he got to that age. But the <laughs> point is that 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 he had suffered so much stress and strain uh, on his life. But at the same time, uh, the stick the persistence that that generation exhibited is something that we've got to remember now. They performed that uh, version and brand of blackness with extraordinary valor as well.
1: So let me ask you this. I mean, one of the things you brought up is how we how we entertain as you take this constant barrage along the issue of race. And you brought up critical race theory. You know, I've I've had I've had uh, some great scholars on this show talking about critical race theory, et cetera. But what role did you see it play? And you're now at Vanderbilt University. So. Sure. You know the the southern the southern strategy of Lee Atwater is. You look back at this election this week in Virginia, looking at the boogeyman that they made out Nicole Hannah Jones and critical race theory to be. Tell me your thoughts and impressions on what you saw.
2: Yeah, it was uh, it was it was it was lethal. It was it, first of all it was effective. Whatever <laughs> that's, you want to that's say, very <laughs>
1: true statement. They they <laughs> they weaponized. They always say that we play. Uh, Identity politics, but they weaponized identity politics Ooh, like nobody's bruh. business.
2: Bruh, they, they the masters of that. And yeah. you know how you the master of it? It's like what you saw on Kaiser Soze, Usual uh, Suspects, but C.S. Lewis, the great uh, Christian writer, said at first, he said, the greatest trick the devil pulled off is to make people believe the devil didn't exist. And the, the greatest thing, you know, white supremacy does is to make you believe that identity politics is a black thing. It's a brown thing. What is more identity politics than wearing a white hood on your head and trying to lynch somebody? What is more identitarian than that? You've got a Halloween costume as your makeup of your ideology. Bruh. So, you know, they have been uh, weaponizing identity politics from the get go. And they've been masking and obscuring their own. You know, the great philosopher Beyonce Giselle Knowles said, you know, it has been said that racism is so American that when you challenge racism, it looks like you're challenging the idea of America and you're challenging the legitimacy of America. No, that ain't it. We're saying that whiteness has no exclusive right and copyright over the definition of America. But having said that, they weaponize it. Look at what's his name? Christopher Rufo, is that his name? I'm not sure the young white man who just lucked up looking at anti-racist literature, found some references to right. yeah. critical race theory. And he said, hmm, that'll work. As they said in the black church, that'll preach. And he <laughs> said, this a preach among the white, uh, the right wing. And he was right. Uh, you came up with something. This critical race theory is after your mama. I, it reminds me of uh, Julius Lester. You know, white power is going to get your mama. So they think that critical race theory, first of all, they ain't critical. They ain't got no understanding of race and they ain't got no theory. But they all talk about some stuff. They don't even know what they're talking about. If you ask the people who are against critical race theory to define it, they can't. They don't know. Now, let's be real. A lot of the people who claim that, you know, that they are on the side of critical race theory probably can't explain it. But, but, <laughs> the <point> is, <laughs> but the point is that critical race theory is simply a set of ideas, principles and practice generated out of Harvard Law School and other places back in the 70s and really came to fore in the 80s. Derrick Bell, Gary Peller. Uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, Marie Matsuda, Charles Lawrence, and a bunch of legal scholars, they never thought that their stuff would see the light of day be on Broadway, (laughs) you know, the Broadway of ideology. They never thought that, right? They're coming up with a way of saying what? It ain't about individuals. It's about institutions. It ain't about sentiment and passion. It's about systems and structures. That's common sense. We all know we saw what George Floyd, right? We say that. But What Mr. Rufo and others did in terms of weaponizing critical race theory, they made it look like they are all Marxists. And there were some Marxist theory in there, but also Martin Luther King Jr. was in there. So it was a hodgepodge. As usual, black folk, we borrow from whatever in terms of improvising a theory because we about liberation. And whatever it takes to get us liberated, we down with that is productive and prophetic and also um, preserving of democracy. So they've been able to, you know, pick and choose and cherry pick uh, what ideologies and strains go into the makeup of critical race theory. And they've tried to use it to uh, to, to really uh, scare white folk. And they've done a great job. You mentioned, uh, you know, the Southern strategy. We saw it under Nixon. We saw it under Reagan. Uh, Lee Adwater loved the blues and loved giving us the blues. So the thing is, is that the manipulation of ideology and politics and identity for the purposes of weaponizing an idea that could be easily assaulted is a lesson that the gum left ought to learn. Now, what do I mean by that? Is that we so highfalutin and like, oh no, we're, we're, we're you know, the reason, and, and I agree with this part, the reason the right wing is able to do it because they're more reductive and simple-minded. Okay, I'll grant you that. But they also understand how to sell an idea. Look, mm-hmm. they lost the Civil War. I don't know if y'all know that or not. I don't know if y'all know the Confederacy lost it because you can't tell. Because they run in so much ideology and so much symbolic politics. We're just now pulling down some of these statues. That's how effective they have been in identifying their cause as the American one. The left is so is so dead set against skill, against gamesmanship, against figuring out what to do. I'll give another example about this. So when we when it came to uh, deleting the police, (laughs) <laughs> to obscuring the police, oh, to eradicating the police, oh, to whatever the word we were using, right? What was the word? Uh, <laughs> to, to get rid of the goddamn police. I get it. I'm down with you. But it's no harm to go, let's figure out a word that's going to speak to the necessity. Don't give up on the ideology. I mean, on the politics. Don't even give up on the ideological framework that, that embraces the politics. Stick to your guns. Uh, so to speak, but figure out ways to sell the idea so that you have long enough in the culture to incubate that idea so that people accept it. For instance, when you go up to people and do, do you think affirmative action is right? No, no. Do you think that black people should have a better leg up over? You? No. Hey, do you think it's right? However, when they ask that black people are constantly subject to unfair practices. Well, well no. Do you think that people whose um, you know, ancestral lines have given them a leg up should automatically be given a choice over black? People? Well, no, no. So it's how you frame it. I'm not saying that's the only thing, but I'm saying, why are we so allergic to skill, to gamesmanship, to understanding you got to use the right word and talk about the right way? Not because you are sellout, but because you're trying to figure out how to sell the idea so that enough people including on your own side Amen. get it and can explain it and push it forward so i'm i'm for all the progressive stuff but i'm also for understanding what the game is about
1: so let me ask you this the flip side of that is you know you saw the role that that race played on, on one side and the value that that uh, I always say when you r- use racism as political currency, that's almost worse than being a racist itself. But, you know, right. it, it turns out to to prove itself, to, to lend itself to political victories. Right. But then on the flip side, you have a party that just has lulled into, for example, not giving black folk, and this goes into some of the themes that you talk about, anything to vote for. Right. And to wait until, you know, wait until Doug Wilder said it best. He spoke the Terry McAuliffe one time, but Yunkin called him often. I mean, we're talking about Doug Wilder of all folk, right? Right. And so so how do you look at it from the other side of black folks still, and you and I are out there every two or four years campaigning for the ideas we think are best and the people we love, but not giving us anything to vote for, telling us that uh, criminal justice reform and voting rights is going to have to wait?
2: Yeah, you know what? What's going to have to wait is your future. What's going to have to wait is y'all getting elected. You know, you depend on black people. You exploit us. You take our resources, our values, our visions, our skill, our game, our know-how, our savvy, our cleverness. And you use all that for your advantage and then you leave us in the lurch. It ain't a good look. And you're so right. I mean, if Doug Wilder is talking to Youngkins, he ought to be talking to McCall because you don't even respect the people on your team. You got Michael Jordan on your on your side and you ain't hollering at it. You got you got Scottie Pippen, although Scotty and Michael beefing right now. But yeah. you know you ain't you ain't you ain't you ain't calling on them. You you got you know Althea Gibson. You got Serena Williams. What is the deal? So you got to call upon the knowledge, the know-how, the the ability to get stuff done of black people, and you got to be willing to to spend a little capital to do it. You know, if you want to talk about the filibuster, if you want to talk about you know going against cinema and mansion, if you want to speak about you know what's your priority? If you're willing to put priority on other stuff and get you know a three trillion thing passed and then it's down to one point five and then ain't satisfied with that and you, you you know because of the political math, you know cinema and mansion are all all out of proportion of you know uh, impactful and powerful than they should be, and we know this. Because we know in the real world, they like the kids at school. They ain't never been popular. They're like, oh, my God. Now, all of a sudden, I got the whip. You know, I'm the one. And so now they're trying to exploit it to no end. And at the, at, at the expense of black people, and we need the regular members of the Democratic Party, from the progressives to the moderates to stand up and say, nope, this ain't cool. And, you know, Joe Biden did when he was elected, you know, did an amazing thing. Right. When the the night that he and uh, Kamala Harris spoke after they were officially elected, he said, black people, I know I owe you. Yeah, that was extraordinary. No president has really done that. And we ought to acknowledge uh, President Biden for that. But we got to say, where's the payoff? Where's the where's we got to do more than lip service. We got to step up to the plate and try to knock it out the park, so to speak, you know, like the Atlanta Braves did. So the man to the Braves, that's right. (laughs) You know, I was pulling for Houston, but what can you say? I wanted Dusty Baker to do something, black coach, black manager, but I ain't mad at uh, Atlanta. Y'all doing your thing. So the thing is, is that, you know, what are you willing to do? What what capital are you willing to expend on behalf of the people who have given their lives? We are still the most faithful members of the Democratic Party. We are still, I would argue, the most faithful citizens in this nation, And we deserve to be heard. And here's the thing. You don't do the stuff that's good for us. You don't do the stuff that's good for America. What's good for Black people is good for the nation. And that's what we got to remind folks of. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology.
0: And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now.
1: So one of the, one of the uh, pieces of, of your book that it kind of stuck out to me Mm-hmm. Um, is your the religion section. I feel like we always talk about Black life and Black politics and Black activism, but the right. Black church has taken a bit of a back seat relative to right. the role that the Black church has historically played in Black life. Right? Do you think that the Black church, as you look at elections and you look at what's going on and throughout the political structure, entertainment, culturally, do you think the Black church has hit a crisis of relevance, particularly with younger Black folks, and if so, why is this the case that we don't see more pro- the, a more prominent role of the Black Church in our current social movements and in our politics?
2: Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, yeah, we you know the Black Church, man. People love to you make it the whipping boy and whipping girl, and how fundamentalist we are. As true, how narrow we can be. Yeah, that's true, too, how conservative we have natural conservatism in terms of morality, not in terms of politics. True. Uh, and reactionary in some elements, true. But dadgum, it's still the greatest institution we ever produced. Is is all that you say and mo. Mm-hmm. But tell you what, homie, you know, try to do it without it. You know, Robert McAfee Brown, the great uh, theologian, late great theologian, white man said, the church is like Noah's Ark. If it wasn't for the storm on the outside, you couldn't stand the stink on the inside. Well, there's some stink up in the church, but there's a storm outside. And so, you know, well, the church is full of hypocrites. Oh, yeah. Politics doesn't have any. Oh, uh, you know, I mean, come on. As William Augustus Jones, about whom I write in the book, said, uh, you, you complain about hypocrites. Come on and join us. There's always room for one more. The thing is, is that every complaint you got about the church may be true, but it's true of every other institution. It's true of your sorority and your fraternity. It's true of your local school board organizing. It's true of every institution composed of human beings. So the church is composed of human beings, but it's got an extra burden because it claims that it has something to do with God, has something to do with divinity. I still believe that the religious institution is amazing and the religious institution, is provocative and the religious institution is preservative, and the ins- religious institution gives us cover, and the religious institution offers us an amazing rationale for our existence and still connects us to a divine source of authority or at least comfort and consolation, even if you don't buy all the stuff and the trimmings in heaven and stuff. What did Walter Hawkins say? I think it was Walter Hawkins. If heaven or was that uh Andre Crouch, if heaven never was promised to me. Neither God's promise to live eternally. It's been worth just having the Lord in my life, living in a world of darkness. You came along and brought me the light. Mm-hmm. There it is. So the thing is, is that the church is necessary and critical. Yeah, young people, I know you can throw off on it because it's got homophobia and transphobia and it's sexist and racist, you know, uh, you know all that stuff. Yeah, all it's those it's stuff. All, yeah. all that stuff. But... It's still an arc of safety in the midst of turmoil. It still provides us the greatest leaders we've ever had. Uh, it still provides us and supplies us, in, you know, institutional integrity and prophetic vision about resistance to white supremacy.
1: Look, I, one of my one of my last questions before I get you out of here because I know you're busy on this book tour, and I just appreciate you taking some time. Mm-hmm. Is you you ascribe to a notion that I ascribe to? And it's, a, it's truly a Southern notion, but you give people their flowers while they're living in this yes, book. And I don't I'm not going to give it away because you, there's a lot in here that I'm going to be using for my speeches and stuff going forward. But you you dedicate some pages to my uncle Jesse and you dedicate some pages to Al Sharpton. Mm-hmm. Why did you commit time and space to Reverend Jackson? And what what will be the lasting roller coaster legacy, nuanced, interesting legacy of Al Sharpton when it comes to what type of political figure he was in Black political history?
2: Yeah, you know, Reverend Jesse Jackson, you got to come up with your own list, right? All y'all out there listening, you got to come up with your own list. And we do lists all the time. Who's the greatest rapper? Who's top five rapper? Who's top five entertainer? Who's top five ball player? Scottie Pippen out here beefing with Jordan right now, saying he was a little bit insecure about, you know, LeBron creeping up on him. And they were like, pshaw, man, he got six rings, six whatever, all right? Yeah, but you ain't been as long as LeBron, 18 years, still in the game, got four championships. 19, 19, 19, 19,
1: 19. This, this is, is 19, year 19. This is, is his 19. This is your 19. 19? This is your 19. Said, never
2: <laughs> been a, this good, this long, this hood, this pop, this one going to get bit up. I mean, so, all right, Tom Brady in the game. Now, having said all that, you got to come up with your own list. Here's my, my list is of the, the top of all time, the top, you know, the top five of all time black leaders. Now, I'm just let me see. Number one, Martin Luther King Jr. Ain't no question about that to me. Number one, without question. Number two could be Frederick Douglass. Maybe Harriet. All right, we can do one of them. Number three is Jesse Jackson, without question to me, of all time, period. He could be number two, right? And then, you know, Harriet, uh, Du Bois. Throw him in there. I'm just saying, that's my list. And when I look at Jesse Jackson, he didn't have the advantage of martyrdom. Martin Luther King Jr. dies at 39, 12 years of public service. Bruh, if Martin Luther King Jr. had lived as long as Jesse Jackson, please don't think there'd be a holiday. Please y'all know this. There would be no celebration of him. In fact, when those letters, when those FBI files come out in 2027, Ain't going to be nothing nice. And there's going to be some young Negroes, among many others, who are trying to cancel Dr. King. This is why I hate, let me say it uh, as strongly as I can, despise cancel culture, right? Oh, it doesn't exist. Stop lying. Yes, it does. Ask Dave Chappelle if it exists, right? Ask people who want to engage in provocative, non traditional, maybe a bit irreverent notions. Uh, do they have the freedom to do so? Now, here's the irony. I thought irreverence was the calling card of the progressives and those who want to speak out against the respectability of politics. But then when it comes to challenging notions from within, you got a problem with that. Come on. So my problem with cancel culture is it has no grace. It has no forgiveness. It has no redemption. Like you act like you righteous. That, that's the whole philosophical point that I think. Right. Right of that Dave Chappelle is bringing up. And and for me, I'm not defending, look, I've been speaking out against homophobia in the black church when it wasn't a thing, before it was popular. I was speaking about loving black women before black women, magic girl, magic, and all that stuff existed. So trust and believe. I'm down with it. And I think transphobia is lethal. It should be pointed out. I think homophobia should be extirpated from the church. I was at a black church two years ago. A black woman came up to me in Cleveland and said, you know you're going to hell. I said, did Jesus tell you that? Because I just spoke to him this morning and he ain't told me. She said, you're going to hell because you said God created gay people. What? I said, you think I'm going to hell and you're a polytheist? You think there's a God for gay people and one for straight? Like God took Wednesday off and said, hey, uh, this this creation act is hard. Let me let, let a lesser deity create the gay people. Stop that balderdash. Having said that, there is a legitimate question to be asked about the nature of identity that trans identities challenges on, which I think is beautiful. Binarisms are what trans identities us on. So let's not be binaristic, either good or bad, either you're right or wrong. Let's look at nuance and complication. Having said all that, when I look at Jesse Jackson, to get back to the point, Jesse Jackson didn't die young, therefore wasn't a martyr. Therefore, some of his uh, flaws were exposed. But when you look at his long distance run, that he carried black people. And I know we are arguing against the great man theory of one single figure at the top, Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, whoever. Absolutely right. When we think about the foot soldiers of SNCC, when we think about the the foot soldiers uh, that Fannie Lou Hamer and Ella Baker and Joanne Robinson and Septima Clark and so on were doing, uh, that's important. Diane Nash and John Lewis, all that's important. However, Jesse Jackson, from the age of what, 26, 27, until now, until he, you know, sick a couple, three years ago, carried black America on his tongue and back. You wanna talk about Nike and sports stuff? He he opened that market. You wanna talk about uh, automobile industry? He opened that market. You wanna talk about Wall Street? He opened that market. You wanna speak about politics? He ran for president twice and created a new generation of aspiration around politics. You wanna talk about social activism and educational circles? Uh, he did that constantly. There is nothing that his genius has not touched. And this revisionist history, and no disrespect to any figure who has been calculated by a president to be their model or their hero (laughs) among the civil rights leaders and doesn't include (laughs) Jesse Jackson, you're lying. You're doing revisionist history. You're trying to obscure because uh, what was occurring with Jesse Jackson. The Atlanta mafia never liked Jesse Jackson. I'm talking about the the light-skinned elite. Oops, my light-skinned myself. Good God. I'm talking about the light-skinned Negroes. I'm talking about the well-heeled Negroes of Atlanta, Georgia, around Martin Luther King Jr. and others. And King is the greatest. He's the GOAT. I've already said that. Didn't dig Jesse Jackson. He was brash. He had the big fro. He was self-promoting. He was a hip-hop artist. He was like Snoop Dogg up against Beethoven or something. But the point is that he was able to ingeniously embody the trajectory of our race. And I think he is overdue for recognition. Al Sharpton, Al Sharpton is like an Emersonian figure, self-rebegetting, self-reinventing. You go from Reverend Al wearing the jump, the, 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 the running suit, to the Reverend Al who's in Brooks Brothers right now, the Reverend Al who's on television and radio every day. The Reverend Al who's on the front line of change. The Reverend Al who picked out, focused on, made hay about, and created a narrative around the most significant civil rights movement and, and issue of our time, police brutality against Black brothers and sisters. Al Sharpton was on that when Negroes thought that's y'all, y'all Negroes in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the hood who messing up who deserve to be uh, arrested because you messing with the police. Oh, now your bourgeois Negro children getting arrested. Now other black people getting killed. Now you see it's a scourge. Al Sharpton was on that before it was a thing. I think Al Sharpton is one of the most creative. He's certainly the greatest, you know, individual leader of our time, a singular force for good, uh, a, a political godfather. I went to his event the other day. You know, you got the governor of New York, you got the mayor of New York, you got all you got the vice president of the United States of America, and Al Sharpton did something that no other black leader, who was the leading black leader of his or her times, had to do: deal with the black president. How do you negotiate that? How do you both represent the historic interests of black liberation and struggle while embracing the political status quo? Because it's at its helm is a black figure. So I think Al Sharpton will be historically will be treated far more kindly uh, than some have tried to make him out in our own time.
1: I think Jesse's definitely in the top 10, 12, my five. I was over here thinking about my five is, is Martin Thurgood, Malcolm Stokely and Fannie Lou.
2: Man, you, yeah, that, that, that's a great list, but I, I don't know how you can't put Jesse in the top five. And I love Jesse. I, you know, Jesse and I—we go way about back. The impact. I'm talking about I, the laws changed. I'm talking about Malcolm ain't changed the law. I love Malcolm. I love Malcolm. Yeah, I don't know who I take
1: out. I'm definitely not. I mean, because Ma- Malcolm, Malcolm was Malcolm was Kobe wearing eight and Kobe wearing twenty four. You know, Malcolm is in the Malcolm's in the Hall of Fame in both numbers now. That's so. good. That's good. i am going
2: to feel that. I'm a going the first time. My so brother t- Jesse, Jesse was like LeBron then. If you go there, no Jesse is LeBron.
1: No question. But I I think when I look at when I look at how versatile Jesse is, I also think that somebody else who doesn't get the credit they deserve in term, terms of their versatility was like Vernon Jordan.
0: Right.
1: You know, it, you know, they together oh, yeah, they no they, doubt about that. Yeah. Anyway, my brother, tell me where they can buy this book, when they can get it. Man, I enjoyed it. Everybody needs it. It's going in my if you are a friend of Bakari Sellers, you're likely going to get it in your Christmas book bundle that I'm going to send to you. So tell people when they can get it, how they can get it.
2: Yes, sir. You can go on Amazon. I mean, I'm I'm i deal with the giant there. Go on uh, Uncle Bobby's, go on Books a Million, go on every, your favorite black store, go on wherever you buy books. And get this book, man, because you know, I put my heart and soul into it. Plus, uh, as Biggie said, I got kids to feed. <laughs> okay, I got grandkids. I got grandkids. I need to help them. But I want to, you know, make a difference. I want to, you know, change minds. I want to uplift spirits. And uh, hopefully this book will do it. So wherever you get your books or go to the regular bookstore and uh and buy it in physical form or download it or go on Amazon or go on the Uncle Bobby's and any other, you know, uh, the, the, uh, what's the black books? oh my God, my people in Washington, DC, oh, mahog- ma- mahogany, mahogany, uh, mahogany, go to mahogany and check them out wherever you get your books. And that's where you'll find me. my
1: brother. Thank you so much for joining the Bakari sellers podcast. I love you. Give my best to thank your well. wife, your kids, everybody, man. And thank you have you, a blessed, brother. a blessed book tour, man. Go ahead and get another bestseller under your wing.
2: God bless you, my man. Love you so much. Same to your family. Keep doing your thing. All right. Be easy.